This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Well, welcome once again to our Hurt with Fetters podcast. I'm Pastor Greg Smith sitting here with author Jason Karch, author of the book Hurt with Fetters. Uh, and we encourage you to check it out. You can find it on Amazon. Jason, good to see you again today. Welcome. Glad to be here, Pastor. So today we're going to discuss a reflection on love. This is uh, chapter 8 of the book. And I want to begin, Jason, just by uh, with a definition of love. How, how would you define love? I think defining love is you know that's a that's a term that gets thrown around with a number of different connotations you know you can say you know I love ice cream or I love my mother and we're talking about two very different things with the single word love well when it comes to both the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew the New Testament was originally written in Greek you know C.S. Lewis made an impact by writing a book called The Four Loves, where he deals with four different words that is translated from Greek into English as love. And so there's there's multiple ways that we can define love, but I think uh, when we think about the love of God in particular, the way that we def- define that in a Christian sense, I think the important thing for the chapter, and that'll unfold as we discuss this here today, the important thing is is that we can never uh, separate a concept of love from concepts of both justice and law. I think without you know a sense of love, we lose the necessary point of reference for both justice and law. Okay, so why is that? I, or how is that? That if we lose a concept of love, we, we lose the basic foundation, basically is what you're saying, for concept or, or for justice and law. Okay. Well, most most Christians would agree that God is love. Okay. Even people that... First John 4. Yeah, even people that don't believe in God would hope that if God exists that He's a, a loving God. Okay. You know, most people would affirm that God is love. That's something that I think that just part of it, our being, we desire God to be loving. That's an attribute of God, a characteristic of God. In the same way, God is just Psalm 9-15 he's holy he's righteous so you know theologians will argue there's different attributes of God and we can talk about individual attributes but at the end of the day God is simple all of his attributes dovetail down into one you know his attributes are one because for God to be loving he has to be just for God to be just he has to be loving and if that is true theologically, then we cannot separate love from justice. And if law comes from justice, then it has to have some sense of grounding in the love of God because there's a distinct connection theologically in the being of God between justice and love. So when we talk about the love of God, let's go just a little bit, let's back up just a second. When you talk about the love of God, what exactly are we talking about? Uh, Okay, to say that God is love, Okay, I agree. Probably everybody would 
every, every believer, every uh, Christ follower would say, yeah, God is love. What does that mean? So we talked about last episode about where the law of God comes from. Does it come from the wisdom of God? Does it come from the will of God? Well, when it comes to the love of God, I think we have to ask the same type of questions theologically. And I think we answer that question the same way we did when we talk about law. The law of God comes from the will of God. You know, we made that distinction. You know, people characterize the law of God as coming from his wisdom with people like Aquinas. Dun Scotus would say that it comes from the will of God. So I think in the same way the love of God is volitional. It comes from the will of God. The love of God as it is extended to creation is volitional. It's, it's a choice. So in that sense, you know, I define love as esteem or evaluation. And both of those terms have you know, legislative and judicial connotations. So the thought I had when I saw that, uh, you know, just as an example, you know, when you say the love of God is esteem or evaluation, what came to my mind was uh, there in the first chapter of Genesis when God created creation, created the heavens and the earth and on down through. And then he, at the end of each day, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he got to the man, he created man in his own image, finally he says it is very good, which is, in my mind, a term of esteem or evaluation. God is evaluating his creation and, and human beings in that point, and he says it is very good. So if I think of the love of God directed towards me, am I thinking that God, in essence, I suppose, loves me or looks at me on a basic level as a human being and says, yeah, that's very good. Regardless of who I am or what I am, my basic humanity is touched by the love of God in the way that He esteems me. Yeah, well, right? is that yeah. what you mean? Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think some, you know, more examples of that you can see, like in Mark chapter three at the baptism of Jesus, where you know the voice of the Father comes from the heavens and says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." That is a a statement born out of the love that the Father has for the Son, where this, ex this esteem you know, is expressed in this statement, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, and it's an evaluative expression of the love of God in reference to the Son. And you can even think about the ministry of Jesus. Why was he even here? John tells him, man, I shouldn't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. He said, no, we're going to do this so that we can fulfill all righteousness so at the baptism of Jesus this statement is made Jesus goes on to fulfill his ministry which culminates in his crucifixion where he atones for the sins of the world so you can see the love of God is expressed volitionally in terms of esteem and evaluation in the doctrine of justification you know once a, a person who is a sinner separated from God sees and recognizes the work of Christ in the crucifixion and, and believes that by faith they are justified they are made right with God so now God makes a judicial decision to declare us righteous why why does he make this judicial decision well it's born out of his esteem and his evaluation for God so loved the world 
that he sent his only begotten son. Is that whoever Or believes? Romans 5, 8 comes to mind. God demonstrates his, his own love, love toward us. Absolutely. His, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God is an, is an action that is, is, is more than just a feeling, which I think is very important to remember that God just doesn't say, hey, I love you people down there. hope everything works out for you. He said, I love you, and I'm going to thrust myself into the middle of your reality. I'm going to come to where you are and put myself in your place. In the New Testament, the word that is typically, the Greek word that's typically thrown out to describe the love of God is the word agape. But but you mentioned that, that even this word does not encompass the entirety of God's love. What do you mean by Agape, you know, you hear this, you can read it in popular literature, you, you know, you hear it kind of tossed around, the agape love of God, this unconditional uh, love of God. Well, what does that mean when we say that? So when we look back, the New Testament didn't emerge in a void. There's direct connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in spite of what some contemporary movements would have us believe there's sure. a distinct connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm a, a firm believer that we can't have any definitive understanding of the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. So this idea of the love of God does not emerge in the New Testament in a void. It comes out of the Old Testament. So I think that we have to try to understand what the Old Testament equivalent to this idea of agape love is. Because you know, you're not necessarily going to read in the Old Testament that God is love. I mean, that is a that is a New Testament concept in and of itself. Specifically, in a general... But it flows out of... Yes. I hear what you're yeah, saying. It, it flows out of the an Old Testament understanding. Yes. So, so unpack that. What is the Old Testament understanding when it comes to the love of God, even though it might not specifically say God is love? Yeah, so the closest, I think... Old Testament understanding of the agape love of God comes from the Hebrew word ahav, and that may be butchering, you know, the Hebrew pronunciation there, but that's where it comes from, and I think it, you know, as it gives an Old Testament description of the love of God, it does so in terms of God's uh, legal commitment He has to His covenant, and I think that that's something that we, you know, overlooked that. God's relationship with creation is governed by a covenant. So his love is worked out in this legal commitment that he has to all of creation that comes from the covenant that God has between himself and creation. Now the application of that, the word ahab, is captured by the more popular word that people may be familiar with in Hebrew with hesed, and again, that may be butchering the Hebrew language there. I would pronounce it more like, I want the K, hesed. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, that word in particular establishes this link between love, law, and justice in the Old Testament. And so naturally, we see when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into the Greek language in the Septuagint, these Hebrew uh, scholars who are trying to figure out how to bring the Hebrew 
scriptures into the Greek language, they have to make linguistic decisions. So what word do they use to translate hesed? And the primary word in the Greek New Testament is not agape, it's heleos, which I think gives us that New Testament connection between love, law, and justice. So connecting love, law, and justice then, a, a legal scholar comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? So now we're talking about the commands of God, right? the law. What's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the word that is that is placed on Jesus' lips there because, of course, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, but uh, uh, but the, the Greek word there is agape. So love God unconditionally, if you will, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is a heart issue. Love your neighbor as yourself. Connect those two things together. So how does that work? We talk a little bit about the command. So this is the law, and law you obey. But I guess it comes back to why do I obey the law? If I'm commanded to love God, what causes me to do that? Other than just, okay, I've got to, I'm going to obey it. Right? All right, well, let's take, let's take a, a step back. So the law is coming from God. Okay. So, you know, I think that we, we tried to determine in the last episode that the law of God has distinct connections between the love of God. His love is his judicial action worked out in law. So the motivation behind the law is not just a naked command without any, this is the command, do it or don't do it. Because I said so. Because I said so. No other rhyme or reason behind that. But the law of God is moved and motivated by the love of God. So if that's the case, then the summary of the law, you know, Jesus captures that well when he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, keeping in mind that love is a volitional thing, it's not necessarily motivated by feelings, is it more important to feel good about doing something I used to feel good about doing some bad stuff. So regardless of the feeling, when we obey the law of God, is that in and of itself an expression of love? Regardless if, you know, if there's some reticence there, I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to, what is the motivating factor there? I think that behind it all, whether or not we want to recognize it, when we make the choice to obey God, there has to be a motivating factor there that's born out of maybe we want to honor God in some way, but I still think that behind that somewhere, however veiled it may be, is a love for God. Okay, so in that account there in Luke, uh, Luke 10, where the lawyer says, what's the greatest command? Love God, love your neighbor. The lawyer follows up, and it says he wants to justify himself, which in my mind, kind of goes back to the ability that we have to obey with wrong motivation. I can, I can obey without loving. I can't love without obeying. I guess maybe you know if I put it in that term. So he wants to justify himself. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? How does that work out? Okay, so we've got love God, love neighbor. Well, wait a minute. 
I'm, I'm trying to, I want to make sure that I'm right here. Maybe it was an honest question. I don't know. Who's my neighbor? How does that, how does that work out? How does that play in? Well, I don't know if it was an honest question or not. I think, you know, they're crafty guys that are always trying to catch Jesus in some kind of trap because I think that he understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. And in his mind, like you say, in order to justify himself, well, I do love God and I love my neighbor, but my neighbor is specifically defined as other Jews. People that look like me, sound like me. Right? Talk like me. The good people. Yeah. And so, you know, in the same way, Today, we can say, well, I'm doing justice, I'm doing right by the law, even maybe loving my neighbor by punishing this guy because he's not my neighbor. And so Jesus, he flips that on its ear by telling this this story about this Samaritan, which this legal scholar would have immediately had a knee-jerk reaction against because the Samaritan is not my neighbor by any stretch of the imagination so Jesus deals with him by pointing out that well who's the neighbor here and the guy couldn't bring himself to mention the word Samaritan he said the one who showed mercy yeah yeah go and do likewise you just real quick before we leave this point because I, I think it relates you use the word injunctive here and we, we kind of kicked this around just a little bit but what surprised me was that the word wasn't uh, imperative, and I'd like to just get your comment on this again. The sentence reads, Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets appears in each of the Synoptic Gospels, where the law of God is captured by the injunctive to love God and love neighbor. What do you see as the difference between injunctive and say, another word might be imperative, the imperative to love God, which would be command. What's the difference? There? An imperative I think would be, you know, I guess to, to, to capture this, you know, some grammarian may you know, try to take me to task over this, but I would say that the imperative is a naked command. It's just hung out there. Matter of fact, when you look at Luther's bondage of the will, he takes Erasmus to task primarily over imperatives, the commands of God that as a sinner, because our wheels are in bondage, we can't perform those things, these naked imperatives that are hung out there that are impossible to fulfill in and of ourselves. So I think when Jesus does this, you know, the question is in reference to the law. He summarizes the law by this concept of love. And I think that when you look at an injunctive, it's not just naked. It's not just hung out there as a command to do or don't do whether you can or you can't do, an injunctive compels us. There's a compulsion, a moving force behind that. And so the law of God, if, if we are performing the law of God in reference to love, we're being moved to do that. There's a compulsion to do that, to love God and to love our neighbor. And I think that if we try and define law apart from that, we miss something important there. Okay, so back to, or, or again, it's an issue of the heart or the, or the will. So I can, I can obey without love, but I can't love without obeying. And what God is looking for is not just our rote obedience. I don't even know if rote's the right word, but, but our bald obedience. He's actually looking for the heart. Yeah, the proper, the proper response 
to the law is not that I'm going to try to grab myself by my own moral bootstraps and man up and do what God told me to do. There's something, no, there's something more uh, that moves me within the core of my being to be obedient in this way. And so apart from that, I think we miss something. And you actually see this in, in a, the life of the Lord Jesus. You know, say, for example, he gets criticized because his disciples are crushing grain on the Sabbath day. Well, you people are violating the Sabbath. You're violating the law. So here are these other folks over here. We would never do that because we're obeying. And Jesus, at some point, quotes, uh, you know, Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, or their hearts are far from me. So you can do without the heart response. But what God is interested in, in us, what he's looking for, is a heart response. And it, I think if you ask the question why, it would come back to your point that God is love and God is just. Those two things go together. And so you mention here that justice is not an alternative to love. If God is love and God is just, you can't separate those two. And you can't, okay, well, we're going to have justice today and we'll have love tomorrow. Right? Yeah. Those things work together. Doing justice is an example of love. So when we get to the practice of justice and if we're moving to the criminal justice system, and you know, you, you've written about one of the things that's happened in our culture, we've separated justice from the foundation of God himself or the law of God. So when you remove that, you know, what do you have? You know, then, then really anything becomes, becomes law or anything becomes just because because there's no foundation there. So you're right that so then the practice of justice or in the practice of justice or in the justice system, what if we have a proper foundation, then love is the reason for law and at that point it would be the reason for the judicial system, I guess, to I'm gonna say enforce the law. I'm not sure if that's what I'm looking for. Well you can you can think again about Jesus is, uh, you know, his reference to these people, they uh, with their lips they honor me, but their hearts are far from me. Now there, there is a, an outward appearance of them doing the law, but they have lost the frame of reference for the law. It's just a shell of what the law ought to be. And Jesus, that's one of the things that he does, is he turns this on its ear. You appear to be performing what the law says but you're doing that in a way that is not loving and love again is the reason for the law and in contemporary times what we have done is exactly what the legal scholar has done when he asked the question in order to justify himself who is my neighbor we have made distinctions among ourselves to where we have a group of people over here who consider themselves the good people and this group of people over here that are not their neighbors, they're considered the bad people. And so the practice of the law among the good people has no reference in love and the whole direction of the law is towards punishment and retribution, separation, isolation, all of these things that have no reference in the person of Sure, God. and it certainly doesn't relate back to say someone who is a good person or wealthy commits a crime, the type of punishment or the way justice is meted out in that 
situation is often quite different from someone who is in this other group over here or doesn't have the resources or doesn't have uh, uh, doesn't have money. So just b before we leave this, the Good Samaritan story here, at the very end uh, when the lawyer says uh, to in response to Jesus' question, so which one was the neighbor? And he says the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. What are the implications of that? Go and do likewise. The comment that the lawyer made, or the legal scholar made, the one who showed mercy. This is the guy who upheld the law, who was demonstrating love toward the neighbor. So he was acting in a way that was just. So when Jesus tells him to go and do likewise, I think the implications there is to show that you know there, there is a distinct connection between this idea of justice love and upholding the law and if we try to make a separation between those two we're not acting in a just way we're not acting in accordance to the law and we're not being uh, loving you know we're not doing any of those things and so Jesus I think punctuates that with this higher understanding of the law of God in reference to love. Just as a, a modern, I guess, illustration of that, something that we've already referred to is the propensity of the prosecuting attorney to try to separate uh, or to create a barrier of separation between the, the jury in a criminal trial and the defendant, right? He doesn't want the jury to see the defendant as my neighbor. He is not interested really in the jury thinking in terms of mercy or love. I want you to think in terms of he's a bad person, he's an evil person, he's done these things and he needs to be punished severely for it. And, uh, and so we separate that. So the, so the go and do likewise is, is completely removed from, from the equation in something like this. Yeah, I actually quote Lynn Goodman in the book where he says, the commandment to love our fellows is, I believe, you know, no more or less than a call to the recognition of their deserts. Persons must be treated as persons. Love thy neighbor makes explicit the obligation that the life of another person sets before us. The measure as thyself spotlights the existential equality of persons, lest we lose sight of the precious dignity of the other while yet preserving at least some fragment of a presumption of the dignity that is our own. So we can't separate ourselves from the other person. By making these arbitrary distinctions, we must always see ourselves as equal uh, to one another. At the core of our being, we share this equal value, dignity, and worth. And whatever our practices of justice and law are, they can never be separated from that through the expression of love. You write that in recent years, there has been a negative reaction against any command or moral obligation associated with love. What do you mean by that? Give an example. Well, I think examples of that go back to, you know, the distinctions we make between one another. You know, there's no concept of love built into 
treating someone as less or as other. There's no concepts of love built into that. And, you know, when we began to use people prior to making that statement, you know, I talk about as far back as Augustine, if we are properly expressing love, we can never use another human being as simply as a means to an end. And, you know, I read a, a newspaper article a couple of days ago about a man that was given a life sentence for a, a particularly heinous crime. He had already been sentenced to, I can't remember, 40 years or something like that. And he's already in his 60s. So, you know, a 40-year aggravated sentence for him more or less is a life sentence. So his defense attorney is arguing in the second case, hey, you know, give him 25 years or whatever, you know, he's already got a sentence, he's going to die in prison. And so the prosecutor's argument was that we need to extend a punishment to the maximum extent of the law for this individual, even though he's going to die in prison because of the, the previous sentence, we need to do this in order to set an example so that nobody else will commit this type of crime. As far back as Plato, criminal punishments were attempted to be used as deterrence, to deter other people from committing crime. And so how is that loving to use a person as a means to an end? And I think when there's a focus on criminal punishments as a deterrent, you're going to punish me in order to deter somebody else from something that they may or may not ever do. You see what I'm saying? How is that an administration of the law and of justice from love? So what would love look like in a situation? Well, extend a punishment for the crime itself, for, for the person, for the perpetrator of the crime, regardless of what anybody else may or may not ever do. This is about this person who committed this particular crime and punish that person in a way that affords an opportunity for restoration for redemption at some point, for reconciliation. Okay. All right, so so we try to bring all this together when it comes to the, the place for myself, for example, as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and as someone who uh, cares about the criminal justice system, the administration of justice, and those type of things. And I, w- I want it to be right. So what you are arguing, what you're saying to me is, is that as a Christian, love somehow, some way has to factor in or undergird my understanding of or my desire for or whatever the, uh, the practice of justice in this country, right? What should I do, I guess, if, if, that is, if that's who I ought to be or should be? then how, uh, how, how does that become practical in my life, I guess? How do I demonstrate my love in this area, in this way? Well, you mean like in, in terms of like criminal justice reform sure. or, or making changes? Well, I think that that begins with elected officials. You know, when you hear rhetoric from, I mean, this begins with prosecutors, judges, maybe even sheriffs, Police chiefs, those are all elected officials. 
uh, all the way up to congressmen and senators and governors, mayors. But when you begin to listen to the rhetoric that these particular people who are running for office embrace, well, a lot of times you'll hear the platforms that their campaigns uh, spring from or this tough on crime legislation. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be tough on crime? Does it mean to be, you know, headhunting, express justice purely in terms of retribution? Well, you know, Christians still have a voice in their communities, you know, in their states, in the nation. And I think that instead of being dragged in and captured by the rhetoric that stems from this false narrative, they have to cling tenaciously to the biblical narrative and understand that if we are properly to express practice justice, to practice law, it has to be, like you said, undergirded and driven by this concept of love. So I think it begins on a ground level right there and, and beginning to, to vocalize these things. And when they hear other Christians talk about, oh yeah, well, this guy or this lady is going to get my vote for X, Y, and Z. Well, have you considered what they say about this, about our criminal justice system? Because you and I both know that most Christians are completely unaware you know, of the nuts and bolts of how all of this works out. So I think it begins with the awareness and being able to voice or allow their voice to be heard in reference to elected officials. Well, I think it's an important you know, thing to consider for all of us because if I'm going to be a follower of Christ and I am not just going to experience the love of God but I'm going to practice the love of God that is the love of God is going to flow through me it has to go through every every area and aspect of my being and my understanding and so I think you know as you mentioned you know if I hear if I hear a politician talk about being tough on crime just on a, on a human level, I might not even think about, oh yeah, I, I want to be kept safe. I want the bad people, you know, put away. I want them, and and maybe I don't even care what happens to them. I try not to think about that anyway. But as a child of God, I can't, I, I can't just stop there. I can't just allow that, you know, to take place. If the love of God dwells within me, and if I'm going to go and do likewise, if I am going to love my neighbor as myself. I cannot just just sit idly by and say, "Oh well, I guess he's getting what he deserved," and you know, if he rots in prison or rots in hell, what difference does it make to me? That's not a Christian response. That's not that that doesn't play well as a child of God. It's an important understanding. Yeah, and I think uh, when we ask the question, you know, you hear this idea of tough on crime, and we ask the question, "What does that mean?" I mean. Believers may be, may be able to even go a step further and ask pointed questions. Take a prosecutor, for example. A prosecutor is running to be elected for, let's say, you know, the Harris County District Attorney and begin to ask them questions because they have a number of different prosecutors working in the prosecutor's office underneath them as they spearhead this thing. What is your motivating factor what is your primary objective when you come into a a felony trial or or adjudicating a, a felony offense what's motivating you there what's your objective there and if your objective is well to send this person to prison for you know as long as the law allows is that 
an adequate response from somebody who will serve in that capacity. And like you say, you know, most people will say, well, I want to be kept safe. Well, what does being kept safe mean? And at what expense? Because I think that if you would have asked Adolf Hitler, he was bent on keeping... Keeping Germans safe. Yeah, well, National Socialism, ideologically, you know, his, his motivation is to protect, to keep safe an idea, a National Socialism that would uh, lend itself to raising a right that would last a thousand years. Uh, and we see how protecting that, how keeping that safe worked out on the world stage. Sure. Not just in a municipality somewhere in Germany, but on the world stage. So, so again, just on, on the basic level, if I am going to be obedient to God and love Him with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I've got to take that injunction to love neighbor, to love God and to love neighbor seriously. And the way that uh, impacts or, or, or plays into my understanding of and response to the criminal justice system is, uh, is very, very important for me as a child of God and for each one of us. So thank you for joining us today. And we want to just encourage you. These, uh, these issues are very, very serious for, for God's people to consider and to respond to. So we've looked at law, we've looked at love and the way that those fit together because God is love and God is just. Next we're going to turn to the issue of atonement or, or how, to, how God works and moves to set right. So is there any hope for the hopeless offender? <laughs> which ultimately each of us are. So we'll look at a reflection of atonement next time. Looking forward uh, to joining you then. May God bless you. And Jason, thank you for, for your words. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt With Feathers podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.